All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3, Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at BullsRadio.org. This is Anthro Alert. It's a beautiful day in Tampa. Hi, everybody. Renee here. Yep. This is Spencer, and for the next hour, we're going to be talking about all things anthropological. So this show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe this show is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Today, uh, we're in for a treat. Anthony is our guest today. Anthony is a Ph.D. student in applied anthropology at the University of South Florida. Uh, he's currently conducting fieldwork in Antigua, West Indies, analyzing the impact colonial sugarcane monoculture has had on the fertility and stability of the contemporary landscape and the livelihoods of Antiguans today. Anthony considers himself an anthropological archaeologist, analyzing how archaeological material can illuminate the lived experiences of both historical and archaeological populations. In Antigua, Anthony uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to analyze anthropogenic soils as artifacts of intensive agriculture beginning in the mid-1600s. Well, that was a, that was a mouthful, Renee. That was, that was quite a lot the, to say. Say hi, Anthony. Hi, thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, before we get into some more discussions with your research, I'm going to break down some of those fancy terms that Renee just used. Um, so first, let's talk about anthropogenic soils. What is that? What does that mean? Uh, these are typically soils that are generated as a result of human activity. Um, they may be created deliberately, such as gardening or potting soils, or inadvertently, uh, as in landfills or mining soils. Uh, monoculture, this is an agricultural prod, uh, practice that focuses on growing or raising only one type of crop or livestock uh, at a time. And then the Anthropocene, so the suffix scene is standard to refer to an epoch in geological time. Um, currently, we're in the Holocene. And the Anthocene describes the most recent geological time period as being human-influenced, uh, hence the prefix anthropo. How did I do describing those, Anthony? Very well. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm glad we have one on the show to do more justice when, than what Renee and I can do. You know, and honestly, our four listeners, or, or rather three listeners now, because one of our listeners from last week is here in the studio um, one of our four listeners may remember that um, we once thought that archaeologists were were emulated in the or or, or eloquently portrayed in the movie. Uh, what was that movie? Um, I, can't, I can't think of it. Indiana Jones. Indiana Is that what you're thinking? Jones. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more, Anthony? Okay. Uh, so as you stated earlier, I work in Antigua, down in the Caribbean. Um, Antigua is special for a few reasons. Um, the entire island was variably dedicated to either the sugar or rum industry from the mid-1600s, actually through independence from Britain in 1981. 
as a result, these industries actually played a central role in fundamentally altering the political, the economic, the social, and the environmental trajectories of the Caribbean region. So my research uh, really tries to contextualize the environmental or landscape legacies of intensive sugarcane monoculture within and around the site of Betty's Hope, which is one of the largest and well-known colonial sugarcane plantations in the Eastern Caribbean. So I analyze the legacies, conducting geoarchaeological analyses on these anthropogenic soils, as you described earlier. Mm. So how did how did you get involved um, in the specific field site you're in now? Uh, so it was specifically through my advisor um, and gaining connections um, through USF to this field site. Uh, but I have always been interested in anthropogenic soils, mm-hmm. how humans impact the landscape, particularly how humans impact the landscape in the past, and those visible remnants we can still see on the landscape today. Hmm. Who who exactly who is your advisor? My advisor is Dr. Christian Wells. Oh, well, that's a name that we will be familiar with because he'll, he'll be on the show at some point. So what is your role um, as an archaeologist in, in addressing some of these questions and in, in looking at anthropogenic soil, uh, soils and, as we talked about, like the Anthropocene and, and monocultures as it, um, as it addresses, you know, the rum and sugar industry in, in Antigua? So I'd first like to break down a couple of the terms you mentioned earlier. Um, I consider myself an environmental anthropologist and a geoarchaeologist. So what I'm looking at is the environment and its relationship with people through time. More specifically, archaeologically, um, my research emphasizes learning about the past uh, through this relationship between archaeological record, people, uh, cultural institutions, and the resulting ecosystems. The way uh, geoarchaeology informs all my research, Um, geoarchaeology is a field which combines traditional archaeological methods and theory with methods and theory from environmental sciences, uh, earth sciences. So my study um, really considers um, largely um, environmental anthropology, a geoarchaeological study, uh, utilizes the theory of niche construction. Uh, which simply states that humans have the ability to shape and also be shaped by the environment around them. So, so you mentioned la- uh, calling yourself or labeling yourself an environmental, an environmental anthropologist. Why is that an important term to use to describe yourself? So it really characterizes the, the breadth and range and the tra- type of questions I'm trying to ask about humans, how h- human societies have been shaped particularly how they've been shaped by the environment. So in your um, brief description of your research that you gave us um, previously before the show, you state that these industries, or you stated earlier actually in the show, that these industries played a central role in in fundamentally altering these political and economic and social trajectories of Caribbean society, and that your, your research is looking at not only how anthropogenic impacts of the landscape, but how it impacts the livelihoods of um, the the communities and and population in contemporary Antigua. Can you highlight some of these um, impacts in their livelihood that maybe you've seen in your research currently, or maybe you expect to see? So today, what we're seeing on the landscape are stability issues in terms of um, soil eroding away, 
And we're also seeing fertility issues. So we're seeing constraining ish problems with growing certain types of foods. Uh, sugarcane, uh, especially sugarcane monoculture, was especially damaging to uh, the Caribbean landscape. So I, especially in Antigua, the entire island was deforested uh, right around the mid-1600s when sugarcane production really took off. Now, it's important for one main reason um, in terms of landscape stability. So all of the trees, all the other vegetation that was on these uh, more uh, mountainous slopes in uh, Antigua, they actually held in a lot of the soil structure. So when you take away that structure and don't replace it with an adequate or um, anything that can hold the soil in just as well, it actually increases the level of erosion. And what happened in Antigua was the planting of sugarcane across the whole entire island created what we call in archaeology a built environment. So it's an environment that is now controlled solely by humans. Um, not only is it degrading while humans are using the landscape, exploiting the landscape, but also there are even greater effects after humans deinvest from these built-in landscapes. So now, uh, if you had the sugarcane holding in some soil from uh, more higher elevations, now you have nothing to hold back the soil. So you have increased erosion once these built-in landscapes are abandoned. Okay, so let's let's recap some of that. So in the 1600s, the, the landscape or the economic model for Antigua shifted to sugarcane production, sugarcane cultivation. And as a result, there, as a result, there was deforestation, a loss of trees and vegetation, and probably the most important impact was the increase in soil erosion. Over time. Over time. Um, but the most immediate impact was the creation of a built environment and the creation of a large sugar complex on the island. So the entire island was essentially, at this time, through um, especially the, the 1800s, uh, dedicated solely to sugarcane production. So, so what is the, um, I guess, the distribution of time that people spend um, still in the sugar and the rum industries? Is that still around today, or have... Has agriculture shifted to another another crop or crop? So sugarcane is not grown on Antigua today. It was officially abandoned in the early 70s. Uh, there was revitalization efforts, um, tried to bring back sugar as um, an economic advantage for um, a newly independent or uh, partially independent uh, island. Um, However, the, the soils could not maintain uh, high levels of sugarcane production anymore. Um, the UN actually did studies along with the British government around the early 1970s, um, UN in early 2000s, um, stating how the soil is now um, severely degraded and cannot support this agricultural production anymore. So there is no more sugarcane production on Antigua. Hmm. How is that, um, you know, the degradation in, in the soils, how has that affected, um, sub, like, for instance, subsistence agriculture or, um, you know, growing crops for food? Um, what is, do you know what the, the diet is like on Antigua today? 
So I can tell you what the landscape is is like on Antigua today. Um, so there's various landscape legacies from the sugarcane production. Um, just walking around Antigua today, you'll either see areas that are still in production, um, areas that are in um, what's more of a, a moderate production or not as intense. Um, and these areas, uh, the soil horizons or, or layers of soil, are much shallower than they would have been in the mid-1600s. Uh, this is important because the more shallow soils you have, uh, the uh, more limited the number and variety of plants you could actually produce. So smaller soils, uh, sh more shallow soils, and you can only plant sh crops with shallow root systems. Um, then you also see lands that are just lay fallow. Uh, there's lands that are also turned into pasture these days. So you see various modes of production still occurring on the landscape. Um, in those areas that are more moderate, you'll see things such as squash, tomatoes, anything that has a smaller, a more shallow root structure. Anthony, I have a question. So is, is there a, a one-size-fits-all model pertaining to a built environment? You know, how, can, how can the anthropological perspective contribute to the well-being and the economic well-being of Antigua? So there is not one sole model about um, in terms of studying built environments. There are general rules of thumb um, that you know once built environments are abandoned, uh, they'll lead to more severe derogation of the landscape. However, all of the derogation must be contextualized within the history of the area. Well, just to remind our listeners, you're listening to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We're in the conversation with Anthony, and we're discussing landscape management. Uh, see, landscape management, built environment, sugarcane cultivation in Antigua. So I think we're going to take a short break. All right, so we'll play a little bit of music. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back very, very soon. So stay tuned. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at BullsRadio.org. This is Anthro Alert, and we're going to resume the conversation that we're having. But first, this message. Have you ever used the water bottle filler that is available around campus? Did you know that this system was a project started by a student organization? We are Enactus, spelled E-N-A-C-T-U-S. And we are student leaders who use business concepts to develop projects that help improve the community. Being in Enactus will help you get involved, develop relevant skills, and directly impact the community. To learn more about us, please visit enactususf.wordpress.com Once again, enactususf.wordpress.com We welcome students from any major and year, which, now this student organization sounds super relevant to the conversation we're having. Spencer, would you be able to help our listeners uh, review the, the concepts that we've just gone over? Absolutely, Renee. We are joined here in the studio today by Anthony, a Ph.D. student here in Applied Anthropology at the University of South Florida. Um, he specializes in environmental anthropology and geoarchaeology, and 
earlier in the episode, we have been talking about the landscape legacies of um, sugarcane monoculture in West Antigua. And so Anthony is going to go more in depth on the methods that he uses in his archaeological work um, in West Antigua. Anthony? Yeah, so I thought we would just go through some of how I actually study uh, my research question. So environmental anthropology and geoarchaeology are especially interdisciplinary. Uh, so I combine normal, uh, regular anthropological methods with various geoarchaeological methods, so soil sampling, um, geomorphology, and there's a whole host and suite of uh, physical and chemical techniques to analyze these anthropogenic soils. Because uh, these anthropogenic soils, um, really the, the field that would study uh, the chemistry of these soils is called geochemistry, um, specifically uh, the study of chemical properties of geological features. So what anthropogenic soils is, is that idea that human impact has left a distinct chemical signature separate from those natural geological uh, chemical signatures. Uh, so this is what I'm really studying, is what humans have added to the landscape, which could really inform what the intensity and what was going on on the landscape. So I mentioned uh, soil sampling and, and geomorphology. Uh, soil sampling is simply sampling different parts of uh, the landscape, which may have been impacted by past anthropogenic or this human-induced activity, uh, which occurs, is informed specifically um, in my research by historical maps. So I'm researching Betty's Hope. I want to know where on the landscape the former sugarcane plantation was. So I based my sampling strategy around where each uh, um, pot on the plantation was, uh, trying to gauge the, the level of human impact on that landscape. It's also informed by geomorphology or the study of landforms. So I want to know um, what happened on this particular plot, but also in that plot on the landscape uh, in each of the different landforms that might intersect it, mm. which will tell you a lot about landscape stability. So how do you, you, you get to Betty's Hope and um, you've plotted out some of your plantations. How do you go about um, collecting those soil samples? So I collect them a lot through hand augering um, using a, a bucket auger. So imagine a, um, a tea bar, something to hold onto, and on the end is a tiny bucket, roughly five inches uh, tall, uh, that has this helical cutting edge on the bottom. Uh, and all you do is turn the auger, um, and it will screw into the ground, and you can pull out a sample size, uh, a soil sample. Will you do a sample from each section of the plot, or how do you, how do you divide that up to make sure you've distributed, um, I guess, adequately? So I will take samples from each plot, and also each landform each different change in elevation on that plot. Mm. Um, you know, the rule of thumb is you, you want three in order to sort of correlate them together to come up with some estimate of human impact on that particular area. Mm. So what, um, we've done soil sampling. What other kind of methods uh, would you typically use in your research? So those are the methods that you would typically use out in the field. How do I actually get data out of these, analyze them once I get back here to USF? 
there's a host of physical and, and different chemical analyses. So physical, um, simply um, one of the easiest methods is Munsell color charts, uh, widely used by archaeologists in all sorts of contexts. Uh, it is just as it sounds. It is a booklet uh, with different soil colors, uh, the hues, the values, and you simply match up your sample with the color, and that will give you some rough indication of the, the components, uh, what is that soil is made up of, um, silt, sand, clays, things of that nature. Uh, and then there's uh, chemical analyses, which will really get at the intensity of human impact and the resultant fertility of the landscape. So there is one uh, method, uh, fancy name is uh, loss on ignition, but it's a method where you will burn off all organic matter. And what you're left with is a percent loss. So you can know how much organic matter there was to begin with in that sample. And that will tell you at least one measure, um, and there's many others, of how, uh, how fertile the soil is. You should get roughly 3 to 6% in order to have um, strong agricultural yields. Um, but what I'm finding is usually anywhere between two or below. Um, some areas have a tenth of a percent. Um, so then the implication of that is that the soil quality is less than what's expected and insufficient to, to meet the needs of agricultural demand? Is that how, is that's how I understand it? Is that right? That's correct, yeah. It's uh, one of the measures of um, a direct reflection of the fertility of the soil. Now there's also various chemical analyses. So you could do um, portable X-ray fluorescence or PXRF in um, archaeology. And again, very very fancy names. We like all these um, very fancy methods, but it's uh, all you, it literally is just a laser. You will um, pretty much uh, sample each of your sample and tell you the um, the elemental composition of that soil. And there's been various studies so far um, of what different concentrations of elements indicate in terms of the activities that were going on in that landscape. Uh, this is research that has uh, a long antiquity in terms of using uh, elemental analysis to look at archaeological activity on the landscape. Initially, it was only geared towards um, designating or delineating archaeological sites. So if there was some change in the chemistry, you know that there might have been an archaeological site here versus no change elsewhere on the landscape. There probably wasn't any archaeological site. Um, however, it's, it's evolved and changed um, more recently uh, into looking at activity patterns within a site. Mm -hmm. So are there, if there are certain concentrations, say, in the northern corner and not in uh, the eastern or the western side, what does that tell us about activity within that site? So when you when you perform some of these methods on your soil samples, what are some of the common things that you would expect to find? With like as far as the chemical composition of some of these soils, um, I guess that are particular to um, the context of um, was it Betty's Hope is your site? Yeah, that's correct. So what you're really going to be looking for, especially in PRX, PXRF, are those, those heavy metals. That's what ends up showing uh, most often. Uh, one of the elements that are used, uh, especially in agriculture, is you know, strontium, phosphorus, nitrogen. Uh, 
these elements that plants take out of the soil. Uh, and looking at those elements can give you some degree of the intensity of agricultural production. So PXRF, so once again, it's portable X-ray fluorescence. And what do these what do these images look like? So not necessarily an image; it'll just give you numbers. Uh, oh, I see. On the screen, as you're analyzing, it'll just give you a nice graph, and then it will put a lot of numbers into an Excel spreadsheet, which then you have to go analyze. The easiest way to analyze them is to look through each of the different layers that you sampled and to see some significant change that occurred. Well, that's really interesting, and I am so glad you cleared that up because I was picturing these super colorful fluorescent colors, and and I was curious as to see what they look like. So uh, I am a little disappointed that they're only numbers, but I suppose if you really wanted to, you could make your charts super colorful. I suppose you could. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in seeing... Um, what are the, some of the most common issues that you've run into or maybe areas of concern, um, maybe specific to your research or in, in your area of study, either you know, in performing these analyses once you're already back in USF or maybe being out in the field? What are some, or some of the difficulties of being an archaeologist? So some of the difficulties of being an archaeologist is, uh, well, it depends on your region, where you're studying, but it's definitely an, an access to um, that study population or study region um, requires a lot of funding. Um, so you have to have some degree of funding, especially if you're doing international projects to get over there and conduct research, uh, and then also have some means to analyze your research once you're back. And then uh, the only other uh, issues that I ran into, especially those areas that are in contemporary production in Antigua. So I'm not just going to go into them and start sampling their soil. Um, so it's how do I gauge a picture of the whole entire landscape while still respecting and sort of working around current agricultural production in the region. So being very aware and considerate to not impede any of their economic situation. Exactly. So what are, what are some of the potential impacts that your research could have um, in Antigua? Maybe what is something relevant to um, the, current, the current state of that population that maybe your uh, research could help inform or could influence? So it could help mitigate the landscape instability issues that are occurring, inform the degree of derogation that has occurred on the landscape, and then potentially in the future uh, develop some kind of sustainable land use plan. Uh, but in terms of archaeology as a whole, uh, this research really helps contribute to a first-ever island-wide understanding of the environmental impacts of plantation agriculture in the Caribbean. Uh, more generally, uh, it also helps inform archaeologically the understanding of land irrigation resulting from agricultural abandonment or the abandonment of those built environments. That's really fascinating. I, I think archaeological research is, is so fascinating and, and the work and the different, you know, you can branch into geology and you have all these different avenues to, to perform this research. When you're out in the field, have you seen or have you noticed um, 
in, in your opinion or maybe what you've experienced out in the field that the people of West Antigua have also noticed some of this landscape degradation or infertility or, you know, how is how are the local um, you know farmers or agricultural workers to how are they reacting or adapting to sort of what to what's happening with the soil? So there is uh, a recognition that there there's variation on the landscape in terms of what are what are being done or the the further recognition. That's definitely one of the the future aspects of my research and one of the more exciting parts that are still to come. All right, so. So super fantastic, super interesting. One of the things I find about archaeology is that it can be so incredibly complex, and this is just but one portion of the archaeological spectrum. Now, we're going to take a short break, but first, I, Spencer is going to read an announcement. Have you ever wanted to go to the USF Botanical Gardens but didn't know where you, uh, what to do there? Connect with the Botanical Gardens Club, and we will show you the way. The Botanical Gardens Club volunteers at the gardens, grows vegetables each semester, and has recyclable arts and craft projects. If you can't make it to any of those exciting events, come to our monthly socials. Join us on Bull Sync or, uh, or Facebook or email usfbgc at gmail.com. Again, that is usfbgc at gmail.com to receive updates on all of our events. Thank you, USF Botanical Gardens Club. All right, so we are listening to, you're listening to Ant Throw Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and always streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. And so far today, we've been having our conversation with Anthony, an archaeologist, talking about the landscape, the soil the sugarcane production of Antigua and how that affects the people living there today. So as anthropologists, we are very interested in people. And so, so I think we're going to shift the conversation to that a little bit more. Yeah, so uh, what are your perspectives on that, uh, Anthony? We've, we've talked about soils, but what about the people of Antigua? So I'm really glad you guys brought that up because we can never forget about the people, right? All of these soils impact uh, both historical, contemporary populations in different ways. So these soils can really be think of, thought about, uh, and it's been defined before, as uh, cultural soilscapes, or this idea that soils are shaped by social forces as well as natural ones. So social forces, uh, intentional production of sugarcane, or natural forces, contemporary erosion. So I like to take the, the story a little back in time, uh, at least in, in history, uh, and explore the region and explore how soils fit into it prior to um, sugarcane production. So in the Caribbean, uh, especially uh, particularly on Antigua, there were multiple migrations into the region by previous um, populations. Um, first, um, archaic populations roughly 5,000 years ago the first population to really start degrading the landscape, uh, at least at a small scale, uh, were the saladoid uh, period. And that was roughly what could be dated to, or has been dated to in Antigua, to roughly 71 AD. Um, that's another thing with archaeology. You only know what you find. So, so far, we've only found, uh, archaeologists have only found 
information that could date the Saladoid period to roughly 71 uh, AD. So these people were actually impacting the landscape through small-scale agricultural production. So to some degree, there was deforestation and agricultural production at this time, but not to the degree that we saw later on in the colonial period. The site was, uh, Antigua was discovered, uh, and I say discovered in quotes, uh, by Christopher Columbus in 1493. Uh, naming, Antigua was named after uh, Santa Maria de la Antigua, by Christopher Columbus. However, at this time, there was no European settlement on the island, particularly due to water resources. Settlement really didn't come until uh, the 1600s during what was no, what's known in archaeology as the second migration or second European migration into the Caribbean region. Uh, and it was around this time when more intensive agricultural production began. So it initially from about roughly 1630s through 1655 or so, uh, a variety of crops were grown. And at this time, the main export was tobacco. But around 1654, uh, that shifts to sugarcane monoculture. So at this time, also remember that in order to produce sugarcane, uh, the Caribbean region was part of the triangular trade part of uh, the trade of enslaved Africans. And you have to think about while you're doing uh, this research and while you're studying the sugarcane uh, production about the lived experiences of this population and the harsh realities of everyday life. So you have to contextualize your research regarding the, the lived experiences of these historical populations. But also you have to think about contemporary populations as well. So there's really fascinating stories about, about heritage um, tourism and what's, what's happened to um, what's been called as you know, monuments of colonialism by some contemporary Antiguans. Uh, what's happened to all of the, uh, the sh windmills, all of the, the sugar works on Antigua? There are roughly 195, 85 um, sugar plantations on the island at the height of production. And there still are about 95 windmills dotting the landscape. Um, so these, as I mentioned earlier, represented these, these monuments to colonialism. And initially, uh, preserving this heritage in the contemporary population was uh, contested. It was um, this remembered as this harsh reality for a lot of descendant populations. So Initially, uh, on Antigua, particularly Betty's Hope, uh, a lot of the structures were burned down. Um, at the, around the same time that they were restoring one of the windmills to at least working function. So thinking about uh, the harsh realities the sugar complex created for enslaved Africans in uh, during the colonial period, and thinking about the the, the memories of the sugar complex for contemporary Antiguans, you have to contextualize all of that um, in terms of uh, that has to be contextualized along with the landscape derogation occurring. So this is uh, when I'm studying the, the, the derogation to the landscape is just one part of a larger um, experience in harsh reality in the Caribbean. So, so you bring up a very interesting point that, that I think 
what, what that really speaks to me is when you're talking about heritage tourism and, and monuments of colonialism, and that is at, at the time where some of those monuments or structures were being destroyed or or restored. How, and and this isn't this is more so a rhetorical question or just a a thought experiment. But where do where does a population, where does a community find a balance in in reclaiming their culture or reclaiming aspects of their culture versus recognizing historical realities that happen? And I find that to be a uh, a very fascinating concept or, or, or conflict as far as cultural as far as cultural reality goes. That's really difficult. In terms of Antigua, uh, during the, the time a lot of these buildings were being destroyed, uh, pe- populations did not want to remember this part of their past. Uh, and this was also around the period where the sugarcane industry was starting to was falter, uh, starting to um, aband- being abandoned. Uh, so they had to find uh, another means of uh, economic support. I remember around the time of independence, around 1981, uh, the, the islands were left with, and each island gained independence from various European powers at different times, uh, but on Antigua, they were left with um, how to promote the economic success of the island. And recently, uh, and especially after the revitalization of the windmill at Betty's Hope and other heritage efforts, that focus has turned to heritage tourism, not only on Antigua, but on other areas, other islands throughout the Caribbean, as a means of promoting your heritage as something to bring economic success to the island. So um, are they, so they're building more of these windmills and sort of reclaiming those um, as part of their heritage, and uh, are you... Are you saying they're dis- trying to disassociate those with the colonial monuments that you had talked about earlier? No, um, and they're not building anymore, um, okay. but they're, they at least restored the, the windmill at Betty's Hope. Uh, and it was a shift in sentiment from mm-hmm. monuments of colonialism to mm-hmm. um, a recognition of past and of their collective heritage for ultimately purposes of heritage tourism and this uh, has a lot of economic ramifications. Great. So I think we're going to take one more music break. Um, When we come back, we're going to be talking to Anthony about what he plans to do after he graduates and some other applied aspects of archaeology. We will be back shortly. All right. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Bulls Radio WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa. 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You're listening to Anthro Alert, where for the past hour we have been talking about everything anthropological and archaeological. If you like the music that you heard on today's show, you can re-listen to that music on our website, anthroalert.com. So we're going to continue our conversation with Anthony. Um, moving into more of the applied aspects of archaeological work, but specifically, Anthony, what do you plan to do after you graduate with your PhD? And um, maybe you can explain to some of our listeners what a common career path for uh, archaeologists might look like. So I plan on going into academia after I graduate. However, there's really two different routes 
traditional routes that archaeologists will go into uh, once they graduate. So one is academia, uh, or the second one is cultural resource management, or CRM. So in the United States, especially um, on federal lands before any projects uh, with federal funds can take place, if there's any potential for an archaeological site to be present, the uh, developers must bring in archaeologists to uh, assess the sites and also provide any mitigation to the archaeology that may be present. Is there a particular reason why you chose to go into academia? No particular reason. I think I like more of the, uh, the research aspect, um, conducting more research on the topics that interest me uh, and the intersection of uh, environmental anthropology and geoarchaeology and anthropology uh, a little more than I would on going another career path. Now, one benefit, uh, well, perhaps a benefit, depends on your perspective. One benefit of being in academia is that perhaps you have the opportunity to teach and to mentor. How how do you how does that sound to you? That's really great. So, bringing up the the next generation of archaeologists, anthropologists, or having some influence on the next generation of anthropologists, archaeologists, is really uh, something as a, a, I find very significant. Something I take I don't take very lightly. Uh, so I think having some influence on uh, the field, especially in the future, is something that's really interesting and something that's sort of fascinating and probably drove me to that uh, career path. So as you're planning your career in academia, um, what, do you, what do you think is the future for maybe archaeology in general, but you know, more specifically your, your area of study? Where do you, um, where do you see... I guess, organically, your research kind of, um, what, what areas do you see it going in? So especially geoarchaeology, the next really big step, or the, the step that's already being conducted, but I swear I see more research heading in the future, is uh, geographic information systems, or using these digital technologies to map archaeological data, archaeological finds, and then create a spatial analysis. So reformulating and being able to come up with new questions, new conclusions based upon these digital technologies. Uh, in terms of soils, there's a lot of use with uh, remote sensing and digital soil mapping. So being able to plot out all of the changes on of soil, uh, soil structure, the, the fertility, the elemental composition on the landscape, but also subsurface and be able to analyze all of that data into one database is going to be a new powerful tool for geoarchaeologists. Well, so that is something for us to look forward to. I think we've had a terrific conversation on this hour of Anthro Alert with Anthony, archaeologist, future any, future academia. Any, uh, future any, any final words, Anthony? Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you for coming on our show. Yeah, it was a, it was a real treat. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it was a beautiful day today. I think it's also a day of celebration being close to the end of the semester. And uh, it's such a nice day outside, such a nice day for a picnic, wouldn't you say? It is a beautiful day out today. I can see through the window right now. And um, I believe we are having a celebration uh, later this afternoon. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that, Ryan? Well, as it so happens, the, the Department of Anthropology at USF is probably one of the best departments at USF. And one we're way, not biased at all. No, not no, not at all. And one reason for that is of our regular 
get-togethers, our regular shindigs. Mm. And today we're celebrating the success of this past semester where the department and the Applied Anthropology Graduate Student Organization really put together a, a wonderful assortment of events such as Anthropology in Action Day, which was a fantastic and super successful mini-conference there in our, in our building, over in the Social Science Building. And so today, getting a chance to celebrate with faculty and students and, and really relax and recognize each other for our success this semester, I think. We made it through fantastic. another year. Yeah. Uh, however, it's getting to that time where you're going to start to see people sleeping in the building. Mm. Or not really. Nobody, yeah. nobody does that anymore. Maybe no. not. Okay. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. All right. And this is Spencer, and we will see you next week. <laughs>